Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are good. That no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, your goodness remains. Whether our lives are easy and joyful or difficult and filled with sorrow, you are still good. And Lord, we trust in and are grateful for your word that promises us that these things are for our good, that you work all things together for the good of your people. I pray, Father, that we would trust in that goodness today and every day, that our hearts would not be drawn to our own righteousness, to our own desires, to our own way, but that, Father, we would fully trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, this morning as we come to your word together, I pray that you would speak to your people through it, that you would help us to know and believe that Christ is Lord, that you would change us and make us more like him. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn, if you would, to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. We're going to be starting in uh, verse 17 of chapter 2 this morning. And as we have looked at this book, we have seen the people of Israel at this time having an, a sort of outward devotion to God. They are outwardly devoted to God. They are going to the temple and they are offering sacrifices and they are doing the things that are required of them. But as we have seen, they're not really doing the things that are required of them. They're giving sacrifices that are unacceptable. And all of those things are because of the state of their hearts. Their outward obedience to God has been negatively impacted by their inward disobedience. And their hearts are so far from God that they don't even realize that they are wrong. They think everything is good and they question God. They accuse God. They want to know well, God, we're doing everything right. Where are you? Why are you allowing these bad things to happen to us? Why are you allowing these things to come upon us? Why have you not kept your end of the bargain, God? Because we certainly have kept ours. That is the attitude that Israel has. In fact, as we'll see today, they actually believe that God delights in evil. They think that God not only permits evil, but that he obviously delights in it because there's so much of it and God is doing nothing. But the Lord reminds Israel of who he is and of the reality that justice is most assuredly coming and will come through judgment. But for the true people of God, for those who are in Christ, judgment is no longer something that we fear. 
we don't live in fear of the judgment of God because Christ has already taken our judgment upon himself. And so my hope this morning is that as we come to God's word together, that we will recognize the goodness of God, even when our circumstances don't seem to line up with his goodness, and that we will entrust our lives fully to him, no matter the cost. And so let's look together first at Malachi 2.17 through chapter 3, verse 5, where we'll see that God's people will be refined by fire. If you got a, a bulletin when you came in or picked up a sermon listening guide off the back table, you'll see that we have three points this morning. That is our first one, refined by fire. So let's read together Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 and following. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking... Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? <coughs> Excuse me. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Our passage begins with Malachi speaking the word of God to the people, saying, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Well, what are their words? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? These might be things that they were saying out loud. It might have been a conversation topic among the people. You know, where is this so-called good God of ours? Why are things so bad? It also could have just been an inward conversation that they were having with themselves. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows where their hearts are, what the, their inward thoughts are. And so whether or not they're saying this out loud or whether these are their inward thoughts and feelings about God does not matter. Because they go so far as to say that the Lord delights in evil. Those who are wicked seem to be blessed. That's what's happening. Now, if we're honest, we can, on, we can honestly and obviously identify with this struggle. Maybe we don't go so far as to say the Lord clearly delights in evil as Israel does, but it is very difficult to struggle while those who are clearly doing evil things and they are prospering far beyond what we are. As we struggle and plod 
and suffer, and we see people who are clearly wicked, who are clearly evil, who clearly have no regard for their fellow man or for the things of God, and they are raking in the dough. Everything seems super easy for them. It seems to be a question of justice, which is the, the, other, the other accusation that Israel levels against God. Where is the God of justice? And so what we can pick up from not just our passage, but from the book of Malachi as a whole, is that Israel believes two things to be true. The first thing they believe to be true is that they are righteous. No one who believes themselves to be unrighteous is going to stand up and say, I sure wish God would come and deal with all these unrighteous people. Right? No one who thinks that they are unrighteous is going to invite judgment upon themselves. So Israel clearly thinks that they are righteous. And they also think that God is withholding justice from them. They think that God is unjust because they are righteous and wickedness is happening to them and God is not bringing justice upon their enemies. It makes me think about my children. One day they're going to grow up and be like, I can't believe my dad said all this stuff about me in his sermons and I don't care. Evelyn is really fond of coming to me and saying, Daddy, James hit me. And I say, okay. Well, that's not okay. That's not right. What she doesn't realize is that I observe their, their whole interaction, and I know that she hit him first. And she thinks she is righteous, and the dad of justice is going to come in and bring judgment against her enemy, her little brother. But... God is going to, God essentially says to Israel the same thing that I say to Evelyn, which is, yeah, you're both going to get it because you're both wrong. Because there is another longing here that is left unsaid. There's another longing here that Israel does not express, but is the undercurrent. They are ultimately awaiting the return of God's presence to the rebuilt temple. Last year, I preached through the book of Haggai, and we talked a lot about how the, the Lord was promising that there was going to be a temple, and in Haggai 2.9, it says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so Israel thinks, well, we rebuilt the temple, and there are still no obvious signs of the presence of God here among us. There are no indicators of God's glory here in the temple among his people. And that's a big part of their struggle. We've done what God told us to do. We've built this temple. We've done these things. And God has not come back. Why? Where is he? What is happening? And the Lord opens chapter 3. By saying, behold, I send my messenger. Now, the way that this is structured is kind of like a royal proclamation. It's like a king saying to his people, behold, look at what I am going to do. And all along in this section, he is telling them that justice will come. And it will come in judgment. But it is going to be painful. For all involved. 
Israel seems to think that they're going to be able to stand there while the Lord smites their enemies, and they're just going to go, ha ha, in the same way that Evelyn seems to think that I'm going to spank James while she gets to stand to the side and say, ha ha. But that's not how this is going to go. Because the Lord said he's going to send his messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This is the man who will come and proclaim the coming of the Lord. We know this to be John the Baptist because the Bible tells us so. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, it says this, And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Matthew quotes Malachi. Jesus quotes Malachi. And says, do you remember when God said, when I said this was going to happen? That's the guy. That's the guy. And we can sum up John's ministry in one sentence. You guys are doing great, right? No. John's ministry can be summed up in one sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And who was John telling to repent? Was it the pagans? Was it the Gentiles? Was it all these barbarians in far off lands? No. He is there among God's people saying to them, to Israel, repent. The so-called people of God were not prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is saying to them, the coming day of the Lord is near, so turn from your sins and place your faith in the coming Messiah. John takes no prisoners. The Pharisees come out, he calls them a brood of vipers. He tells everybody that Herod, the Roman governor, is a wicked sinner because he has his brother's wife and it literally costs him his head. He's not a soft man. He's not an easy man. This is the messenger that the king sent. Turn from your sins or perish. And then a different messenger. The messenger of the covenant will come. And I want you to notice the way that this is framed in this book. He says, behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The way that this is structured wants us to recognize that it says, he's preparing the way before me, God, and then the Lord is going to come, and then the messenger of the covenant and the Lord who is to come are the same. They are the same. 
The immediate proximity between the Lord suddenly coming into his temple and the messenger of the covenant helps us to recognize that these are both references to Jesus Christ. The theological term here is the hypostatic union, truly God and truly man. And it is on full display here in the Old Testament for us to see. Not only that, but there's hints at the Trinity. Because what does the Lord say? He's preparing the way before me. And the Lord is coming into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant. We see these hints right here, right in front of our faces. When people tell you, oh, the Trinity's not in the Bible. Oh, the hypostatic union's not in the Bible. They're wrong. They are wrong. It is laid out for us. All we have to do is open our eyes. And so John the Baptist is going to come. This messenger is going to come. And he is preparing the way for the Lord to come suddenly among his people. And that that same Lord is also the messenger of the covenant. And notice, God gets a little sarcastic here with his people. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight... Remember, what did, they, what did they say about the Lord? That the Lord delights in those who do evil. And the Lord says, yeah, just like you delight in the covenant. Wrong. They don't delight in the covenant. Their actions clearly show that they don't delight in the covenant. And if they did delight in the covenant, then what follows after this would not be something to be afraid of. But because they don't, this is a hard thing. Because what does he say in verse 2? But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? When he comes, this is not going to be a day of celebration. This is not going to be, for God's people, a day of rejoicing. It's a day of judgment. Judgment is coming upon them for their sin. When this justice comes, it is going to begin with the people of God. He says there in the back half of verse 2, he says, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. In case you're unfamiliar with how this process works, how they refine these sorts of precious metals. Silver is exceptionally difficult to refine. And refining has to do with removing impurities, okay? And so what they do is they make a very, very, very hot fire. And they take the silver and they put it over the fire. And this fire is so hot that it literally turns the silver to liquid. And the longer it sits in that fire the more impurities float to the surface. And then they scoot the impurities out, let it re-solidify, and then do it again, over and over and over again. And the more you do it, the more pure the silver is. That is what Christ does to his people. We go through the refiner's fire, and remove impurities. The Lord removes these impurities from us through sanctification. And this is, not an, this is not a quick process. It says that he will sit as a refiner. One of the things that the refiners would do is they would stand there watching for impurities to come to the surface, to quickly scoop them out. 
But this refiner knows it's going to take so long that I'm going to light the fire and I'm going to take a break. I'm going to sit over here because it's going to be a while to get this out. It is so deeply ingrained in the molecular structure of what is being refined that it's going to take a long time in that fire to get the impurities out, a.k.a. your life. And so when we think about the Christian life and we tend to think, oh, this is going to be easy. When you have Jesus, everything is sunshine and rainbows. That could not be further from the truth because this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. The refiner refining the precious metal. Because silver filled with impurities is not worth very much. And that's what we are apart from Christ. Worthless. And yet through sanctification, Christ refines his people, makes us more pure. Malachi says that this will begin with the priests. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Remember, one of the early things that the Lord dealt with in this book is the offerings that they were bringing, which were not worthy. They were not true sacrifices. They were bringing three-legged animals. They were bringing blemished animals, sick animals, animals that were worthless to them elsewhere. And they thought, well, just bring it to the temple, right? It's sunk cost anyway. Might as well just use this instead of giving my best to the Lord. Let's use this junk and give that to God. And the Lord says, when the refiner comes, when the messenger of the covenant comes and he refines my people, they will bring offerings in righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Remember something, church. We are priests. We are priests. We are a nation of priests. Every single believer is now seen as a priest in the new covenant because we have access to God directly. We don't go to anyone to ask them to help us find absolution for our sins. We don't confess our sins to a priest who then raises them to the Father and tells us to go pray some beads so that we can be forgiven. We have direct access to God through Christ. We are priests. And so who, we are the ones who are being refined. And we are the ones who give our lives as the offering to God. And the reason why our lives, our offering, is pleasing to the Lord is because of the work of Christ. Not because of the work of ourselves. Our righteousness is worthless but the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ given to his people is what makes our offering worthwhile. We are saying to the Lord, you have given me this life in Christ and I am giving it to you. That is the offering. That is how the Lord purifies his people. And once that work is done, then the judgment will come. That's what we see in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And so the Lord is telling Israel, you want me to come and destroy your enemies in judgment, but I'm not going to do that until I purify my people. Then I'm going to come in judgment. 
And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The root of all of our sin is a lack of fear of God. Think about it. When we fear no consequence, we do what we want. When we fear consequence, we do not do those things that bring consequence. That's the whole point. And so the Lord is saying, I am going to come and be a swift witness against them because I have seen their deeds and I know their hearts. And so in that day, you will either be refined by fire or consigned to eternal fire and judgment. I don't know about y'all, I'll take the fire on this side over the fire on the other side. I will gladly trade difficulties and pain in life now as the Lord in his goodness makes me more holy over eternal fire of judgment. Because those are the options. Those are our choices. And that leads us into our next point in verses 6 through 12, where we see the protection of God, the protection of God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What is it that keeps us, the true people, people of God, from being destroyed in the judgment? The promises of God that are rooted in his immutability. Immutability is a fancy word that means that God does not change. If you went through our Attributes of God series with us, you'll remember that one. God does not change. This is so incredibly important in how we understand God. Because here's the reality. If God could change, then that would mean that he either got better or got worse. There's no such thing as neutral change. You either change for the better or change for the worse. Meaning that he either was before or is now something less than perfect. If God can change, then it means that God either wasn't perfect before and is now, or was perfect before and is not any longer. This is of vital importance for how we understand God. God does not change. And that unchanging nature of God is the only reason that Israel has not been utterly destroyed. Think about it. How many times has Israel been unfaithful? 
innumerable, right? And yet, they still exist. In our humanity, in our changeability, every single one of us would have said, I'm out. I'm done with this. This is too much. You guys just can't do this. I'm, I'm over. It's, it's over. We're finished. God, in his unchanging nature, does not forget his promises to Israel. Israel was literally making a false idol while Moses was on the mountain getting the law. They left out of Egypt. God miraculously saved them, crossing the Red Sea on dry land, crushing the most fearsome army in the entire world behind them. And they get to the mountain and they say, well, Moses has been gone a little while. Maybe we need a new God. And they make one and then worship it. That Israel is the one that the Lord has not destroyed because he is good. And they have the audacity to question the goodness of God. What an absurdity. This nation who has rejected God over and over and over again says, God's not really good because things are really hard right now. That's insanity. And so the Lord calls upon Israel to return to him, knowing that they don't know how. And he gives them an incredibly basic way. He says, will man rob God? Under the law, Israel is required to give a tenth of their produce to the temple. It's required under the law. And this is not happening. They're giving worthless stuff. They're giving less than 10%. They are not bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. And God says, if you do this very basic thing, this very basic thing, that he will take care of them. He says, and not, and not just care for them in a meager way, but he will literally overflow with abundance for his people. He will keep their crops safe from the pests that are themselves a sign of the covenant curse. They will be so abundantly blessed that the nations of the world will see their abundance and say, they're really blessed. Now, I want to take a small detour here. Because I know that pretty much everybody in this room started to get a little bit antsy when I said the word tithe. I know that. I know that. Some of you are probably bracing yourself thinking, uh-oh, here it comes. The pastor's going to talk about money. Fret not. Because I am going to say something to you that you probably have never heard. You've probably never heard someone say this from a pulpit in a Southern Baptist church. You ready? All of us have likely heard at some point or another this passage used as an encouragement for Christians to tithe. If you just give your 10%, then the Lord will bless you abundantly. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that that is an improper way to teach this passage to the church. That is not correct. That is not the way that we as New Testament Christians should think about these things. Because here's the truth. There is not a single New Testament command that says that believers are required to give 10% of their income to the church. It doesn't exist. The tithe is not a command for Christians. We are not bound by the law. 
And so unless you find that in the New Testament saying, hey, keep giving 10%, we're not bound by that. Paul himself says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit yourselves to the law when you have liberty in Christ. I am deeply sorry for the legalistic burden that has been placed upon you for all these years. Because that's what that is. It's a legalistic burden. Instead of saying Christians have to give 10%, we should recognize that we are called to look at this in a different way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, it says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had, stated, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So Paul here in his second letter to the Corinthians references the churches in Macedonia that are going through a period of severe affliction, extreme poverty. And because they are so destitute, There is no one saying to them, you need to give to support these people over here. But what do they do? They beg. We want to be a part of this. They beg earnestly, please let us do this. And so they give according to their means, some beyond their means. And Paul tells tells the Corinthians, I want you to excel in this grace. Our giving to the church, to the things of God, is an act of grace. The grace of God upon our lives multiplies in us this sort of thankfulness that leads us to give abundantly, sacrificially. And so rather than approaching this as, I must give 10%, We are called to excel in the act of grace that is sacrificial giving. And so for some people, that's 10%. 10% for a lot of people is is a perfect number to look at because that's sacrificial. It rides that line for them. For some people, it's less. Some people literally cannot afford to give 10% of their income or their family will starve to death. They won't be able to pay their bills. Guess what? I am not going to heap a burden on you and say, well, you better give your 10% and be homeless. Absolutely not. And so for some people, it's less than 10%. For still other people, it's significantly more. I have known people that for, whom to, for them to give 10% is literally nothing. It's like finding change in the couch cushions. And so for them, I would say, give more. Give out of the abundance of blessing that the Lord has given you. Give as much as you are able. 
Give till it hurts a little and trust the Lord. Sometimes you're going to give a lot. Sometimes you're going to give less. That's okay. You will never hear me say to you, you better give your 10% or you're in sin. Because that is not the truth. The overarching truth here still applies. The Lord will care for his people. And when we give sacrificially, he will take care of us. Just as the Lord will protect his people from judgment through his refining fire sanctification, he will protect his people by meeting their needs. Because our God is good. And so don't worry. I'm not going to get up here and say, give more money. I'm going to get up here and say, I want you to excel in this act of grace. I want you to give out of what God has given you. Whatever that might be. And trust the Lord with the rest. Because that's what we as a church do. We put out a budget every year. I don't know what you guys make. The finance committee doesn't sit down and go, okay, well, this person makes this, and this person makes this, and this person makes this. So if we take 10% of everybody's income, then we should get this, and that's how we budget. No. We look at what are we trying to do? What's the best way to approach it? How are we going to pay for these things? All right, here's our budget. And we put it out there to y'all. We put it out there to the church. And all of us say, okay, well, let's do our best to meet these needs. That's the same thing that I would anticipate and ask of you. Give of what the Lord has given you. Because ultimately, it does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. That's what Israel forgot. Everything they had was a gift from God. And for them to say, well, I'm going to hold this back for me, is to say, well, this belongs to me. This is mine. And it's not. It all belongs to the Lord. The last thing we see today in verses 13 through 15 is we see words against the Lord. Words against the Lord. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The people, this is in kind of a bookend to the first thing that the people were saying about God, right? God, God delights in evil. Where is the God of justice? This is kind of a sister statement to that in saying it's vain to serve the Lord. What profit is it for us to follow God? What, what does it get us to do these things? They're saying it is meaningless for us to follow after God. Those references there about keeping his charge or walking as in mourning, they seem to be pointing to some sort of ceremonial or liturgical requirements that were required of the people under the law. Because the law mandates specific requirements in response to certain things. They had to undergo ritual mourning and things of that nature. And so they're, they're pointing out some of these more obscure things in the law. And they're saying, we're doing these things, but what does it really gain? What does it really profit us? What do we really get out of this? Because notice what, again, the real root cause here is. We're not really getting anything from it, but the arrogant are blessed Evildoers are prospering. So again, it all comes back to we are righteous and we get no gain. They are evil, they get gain. 
That's not fair. How is this right? Israel does not understand that outward obedience does not negate inward disobedience. This is one of the main themes that Paul writes about in the book of Romans. Over and over and over again, he is saying, physical circumcision is nothing. Circumcision of the heart is what matters. And that's what he's saying. He's saying you can outwardly do everything right. Inwardly, you are still dead. In Matthew 23, Jesus tees off on the scribes and Pharisees. And he over and over again says, you do all these things right, but on the inside you're a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. You tithe out of your spice rack, but you're still dead. Outward obedience does not negate inward unbelief, inward disobedience. And it's sandwiched, those two statements about the Lord here are sandwiched around a reminder of his promises to help us to remember that God's goodness is not dependent upon our obedience. Remember what he says in verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Are they getting all of the blessings? No but they're also not destroyed. That's the key here. The goodness of God is not dependent upon our obedience. It is dependent upon himself. And we are saved only by the work of Christ because we cannot do this on our own. Because if we are honest, we would say that our flesh naturally gravitates toward questions like, what does this profit me? Why is that person more blessed than I am? That's where our flesh naturally goes. We must have new hearts given to us by God and the righteousness of Christ imputed to us in order to be spared in judgment. We have no hope apart from Christ. The truth of the matter is this. God does bless the wicked. God does bless the sinner. God does take care of the evildoer. And if you don't believe it, look around this room. Pick up a mirror and look at yourself. You are wicked. You are an evildoer. You are a sinner, and yet you are not consumed. You are not destroyed. Why? Because God is good. As Christians, we need to understand that the justice of God is fulfilled in Christ. The justice of God is not something that is owed to us. One of the reasons why we don't seek vengeance against those who wrong us is because vengeance belongs to the Lord. And their sin against him is far greater than any sin that they have committed against us. And so we rest in the goodness of God. We trust in the righteousness of Christ. And it helps us to avoid asking questions like, why do the wicked prosper when I'm struggling so hard? 
the justice of God is Christ is Lord. That's the justice of God. And we have no hope apart from him. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about these things and, and what they mean for our lives and how do, we, how do we walk through this, how do we live this out, there's three things I want to say. Really simple. Not so simple in practice. First is this. Do what is right, no matter the cost. Do what is right, no matter the cost. We are fast approaching a season of persecution that we have never faced here in our land. It's not there yet, but it's coming. It's coming in a hurry. And it will bear genuine, real cost to do what is right. Stand firm. Do what is right. The second thing is this. Trust in the Lord, no matter the circumstances. It is so easy when things are falling apart around us to say God's not good. God's not here. God doesn't care. Don't allow your circumstances to pull your focus toward yourself rather than on God. Because our circumstances either are A, the refiner's fire, or B, the consequences of our own actions. And neither of those things changes the unchangeable God. He is still God, no matter what happens. And the last thing is this. Hope in Christ, no matter how deep our sin. No matter where you are, no matter how far you have strayed from the Lord in sin, Christ's love is deeper still. Christ's grace is bigger still. There's a song we sing here from time to time. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. No matter how far from righteousness you are, hope in Christ because his love for you is greater still. Do what is right. Trust in the Lord. Hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you every moment of every day. As we face the things of this life, the struggles that we deal with every single day, our flesh beckons us to question you, to question your goodness, to reject your righteousness and pursue our own. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to reject that. That we would never question your goodness. That we would trust you always because you are God. Father, I pray during this time that you would move in the hearts of your people. Help us, Lord, to see Christ as great and glorious in all things. And we pray this in his name.
Amen.